So he stops home in Jerusalem on the way home, and he seeks more revenge from the Jewish people. He needs a scapegoat to take out all his frustrations. So this time, on a Sabbath day, when the Jews are involved in worshiping God, he slaughters 100,000 Jewish people. More than that, history records. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at the history of the Medo-Persian Empire, which was actually prophesied well in advance by Daniel in the first half of chapter 11. The historical account of this empire is absolutely amazing as it precisely follows the vision given Daniel, which we began looking at in chapter 10. We left off yesterday seeing the king's son being poisoned by the treasurer, thus fulfilling the prophecy of an oppressor who is shattered, although not in anger nor in battle. As we pick up in verse 20, we see the successor who calls himself Antiochus the God. Antiochus Theos, Theos, we get our word theology from it. It's the Greek word for God. I mean, you talk about a guy with an ego problem. What's your name? Antiochus the God. Antiochus the God Epiphanes. This king is poisoned and is replaced by Antiochus Epiphanes, another son who is often referred to as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Why? Because he's a picture we're going to see. He is a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. Now, when we come to verse 36 next time, we're not going to be looking at a foreshadowing. We are going to be reading a prophecy of the actual Antichrist who will come in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. You don't want to miss it. Now, this king, who is a picture of the coming Antichrist, his career divides into five parts. First, let's think about Antiochus Epiphanes' contemptibility. We read in verse 21, in his place, a despicable person, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Theos, will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now comes a new king, and he's described as a despicable person. And indeed he was. He's one of the cruelest kings the Syrians had ever known. He was unscrupulous. He had a savage temper, and he did some of the most despicable evil sins that I dare not even name. Now, the last time we saw Antiochus Epiphanes, he had been taken as a hostage by, his, by the Romans to ensure his father's good behavior. Well, Antiochus' uh, daddy was killed. Uh, for trying to plunder the of, temple of Bel. And so his son Seleucus comes to the throne. And when Seleucus comes to power, he wants to get his brother home. So Seleucus negotiates a deal with the Romans, giving them his own son Demetrius, nice guy, in the place of Antiochus Epiphanes. And as on his way home from Rome, Antiochus Epiphanes learns that his oldest brother Seleucus had been poisoned, none other than the tax collector Helodorius, who now claimed to be the king of Syria. And so Antiochus Epiphanes comes home to claim the throne for himself, the throne that rightfully belonged to Demetrius, but he's being held hostage. Look at verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And that's how Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power. 
the honor of kingship that did not belong to him. He comes quietly. He borrows some troops from a neighboring king, and he disposes of Helidorius. And with no big battle in a time of tranquility and a time of peace, he steps onto the throne by intrigue, or some of your translations say by deceit. Verse 22, the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. What does that mean? Well, history records when Antiochus becomes king, the Egyptians attack him. But as God prophesied, they are unsuccessful. They are shattered. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. And also, the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant is an Old Testament reference to God's high priest. He is named in the book of Maccabees. His name is uh, Onias. And he was the apostate high priest who was serving there in the Jerusalem temple, but he too is shattered and that Antiochus um, has him murdered and put in his place. He has a priest who's even worse, who's a total apostate, and we read of him further in verses 23 and 24, which brings us to Antiochus Epiphanes' craftiness. Keep reading, stay with me. After an alliance is made with him, the king of the south, he will practice deception. And he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against the strongholds, but only for a time. Now, this speaks of a treaty that he makes with the king of Egypt. He is convinced that the Egyptian king... Uh, can be his friend. The problem is, is this man is a pathological liar. Remember, he's a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. The coming Antichrist is the devil's man. Whenever the devil speaks, he speaks from his own nature. He speaks a lie. Well, this guy is a pathological liar, as history records. And so, while the king of Egypt is at ease, thinking everything's okay between him and this Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes to the capital, Alexandria, and he's sitting and relaxing. In the meantime, Antiochus Epiphanes is quietly conquering city after city, and he takes the plunder from those cities, and instead of keeping it for himself, he gives it to the people to buy allegiance. And that brings us to the third stage in his career, Antiochus Epiphanes' conquests. Briefly, we're told how he enters the Egyptian kingdom, and after he's taken all those small villages over, and he, he, um, he buys their allegiance. Look at verse 25. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for his schemes will be devised against him. Too late for the Egyptian king, because Antiochus Epiphanes with a rich booty has bought the allegiance as the master of defeat. We read in verse 26, those who eat his choice food will destroy him. Even those who sat at Ptolemy, the Egyptian king's table, betray him. Why? Because they had been bought out as most trusted advisors. But even... With all the losses on the Egyptian side, Antiochus could not overthrow the city of Alexandria where Ptolemy, the king of the south, is headquartered. So in verse 27, both the king of the north and the king of the south go to negotiating. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. 
but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Sounds like a lot of the negotiations today. People sit at a table and they lie to each other. They make these treaties of which they have no desire at all to keep. And God is saying this hundreds of years before it happened, which brings us now to his cruelty, Antiochus Epiphanes' cruelty, beginning in verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Remember that phrase, the Holy Covenant? We've already studied it here in Daniel. It refers to the Torah, to the Mosaic law in Scripture. His heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So on his way home to Syria, laden with riches and plunder, Antiochus Epiphanes heard news that enraged him. A rumor had spread in the country of Israel that Antiochus had died. And so the Jewish people are celebrating Furthermore, the rightful high priest Jason gathers a mercenary army of about a thousand men and threw out the apostate high priest. So when Antiochus arrives in Jerusalem, he slaughters 80,000 Jews and he takes 40,000 into slavery. And you can read all of his atrocities in First and Second Maccabees. Now remember, those books are not inspired, but they do record history. This man was vicious. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name means Antiochus the Magnificent One, is nicknamed by the Jews Antiochus Epimanes, Antiochus the Madman. And it all happened just like God said. He sets himself against the Mosaic Law, against God's holy covenant, and he returns home. And again, he is a picture of the coming Antichrist. Then finally, Antiochus Epiphanes' crimes. We read now in verse 29, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. Now his philosophy is, when at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So he goes back to Egypt one more time to try to overthrow the capital city of Alexandria. But instead of having great success, he has no success. This last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. Verse 30, for the ships of Kittim will come against him. The ships are of Kittim. That's part of a Roman province. They come in 168 BC with all these ships, and they basically encircle Antiochus, and they draw a line in the sand, and they say, listen, you need to do what we want you to do. And so humiliated and frustrated, he goes back to Syria with his army. We read in verse 30, for the ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return home and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he stops home in Jerusalem on the way home, and he seeks more revenge from the Jewish people. He needs a scapegoat to take out all his frustrations. So this time, on a Sabbath day, when the Jews are involved in worshiping God, he slaughters 100,000 Jewish people. More than that, history records. And the only ones who have his favor are those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Those who are apostate Jews and not true Jews who refuse to obey the living God. 
And so he creates this universal religion, which, by the way, we will see next time is what the Antichrist will do. Verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. So he conspiring with these apostate Jews, he goes into the Holy of Holies, and he does away with the regular sacrifice. God required the shedding of blood, prefiguring the Messiah's blood, because sin deserves death, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so because Satan absolutely hates what it symbolizes, the blood of Christ that will defeat him and rob him of his power, his man, who's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come, goes in. He does away with the daily regular sacrifice. He erects a statue of the god Zeus. The Antichrist, by the way, Revelation tells us, will erect a statue of himself there in the Holy of Holies. He erects a statue of the god Zeus. He slaughters a pig, an unclean animal. He puts it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant and all over the inside of the Holy of Holies to mock God's holy truth. This was an abomination. It was a disgrace. It's the abomination that makes the temple desolate, useless, unholy. And again, it is a picture, as Jesus will tell us in Matthew 24 that we will study, of what the coming Antichrist is going to do. Verse 32. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Verse 32 tells me that Antiochus, by his smooth and lying words, will turn those who are not true believers to godlessness away from God's holy covenant. By the way, that's what the Antichrist will do. Those who say they are Christians, those who say they are born again, they will be turned away because they are not really born again. But by contrast, the people who know their God, the title of this morning's message, will display strength and take action. And so under a priest by the name of Matthias Maccabeus, who has a son by the name of Judas Maccabeus, they lead a revolt against the Syrian stronghold. Verse 33. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. You see, understand what's going on. The Essenes, who are writing during this time about the events that had taken place, it was already history for them. The Essenes spoke of this group of people led by Judas Maccabeus, who, want, who is so outraged that God's holy temple would be defiled. He refers to this group as the wise. Daniel describes them here with the words, they have insight among the people. Why? Because they're reading Daniel 11, and they've got their finger on it. Yeah, that's happened. That's happened. This is next. They know exactly point by point by point by point by point what God is doing and what God is about to do. And so the godly who have understanding, they show strength, they take action, they want no part with this wicked man, and because of it, they are persecuted. Some are roasted alive, thousands are crucified, many are sold into slavery, and some die by sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder. Now look how he closes. Now when they fall... They will be granted a little help 
and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some who fought in the Maccabean revolt did so not to worship the one true God, but in hypocrisy, no doubt, wanting reward and plunder. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, verse 35 becomes a hinge verse. And he's going to move from a man who foreshadows the Antichrist to the actual Antichrist. And what we will read next time is mind-blowing. Now, I know that most pastors would not preach what I just preached. A lot of you are already glazed over and near asleep. But I am committed to preaching every chapter and every verse when I go through a book of the Bible, whether you like it or not. But with that said, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Two applications. Number one, putting your faith in the reliability of Scripture is not a foolish decision. That's the first application. Now, I know lost people who go through the book of Daniel and they hate it because it has the supernatural all over it. But if they are willing to be intellectually honest with themselves, they will discover that there are 135 prophecies. And in a course in the book of Daniel, the students have to list every single one of those and then document from human history where and how it was fulfilled. This section of Scripture is so incredibly precise because, again, prophecy is history pre-written. But if you begin with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the miraculous, then you have to come up with another explanation for this. Now, here just a week or so ago, we stood at this place. As you go to this place called Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you talk and share with the people what took place, right behind you is this cave. This is cave number four. In cave number four, along with a number of other caves, was found the book of Daniel in its complete form. And the Essenes in that same cave wrote a lot about Daniel. And he was found in many caves because they so esteemed Daniel. And they repeatedly in their own literature refer to Daniel as the book of Daniel the prophets. That's how they viewed him. And by the way, the dating of those scrolls dismissed the possibility that this was written after the facts. You see, prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest edition we had of the Old Testament was about 900 A.D. But now they're finding copies of the Old Testament that go back a few centuries before Christ. And many of the prophecies that are written in Daniel based on the dating of the scrolls happen even after. Not all of them, but many of them. And so they are left with a real quandary. How are they going to deal with this prophecy? One friend trying to convince another friend of the miraculous nature of Scripture. He said, suppose you were walking past a construction site and a large steel hoist suddenly fell and just missed you by an inch. Wouldn't that be a miracle? He said, no, that would be an accident. He said, well, suppose the next day you walked by the same site and another large steel joist fell and just missed you by a sliver of space. Wouldn't you call that a miracle? He said, no, I'd call that a coincidence. He said, well, suppose the third day the same thing happened. Wouldn't you call that a miracle? He said, no, I'd call that luck. 
My friend, there's no such thing as luck for the Christian. Don't ever say, oh, I was lucky. Not if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should never use that word. Now, the unbeliever may have luck, but not the Christian. And so the liberal theologian, because they don't believe in the miraculous, therefore they don't believe in prophecy that only the Bible has, they have to come to one of three conclusions. They either say, well, this is coincidence, or two, they say it's written after the fact, or three, they say it's written by a deceitful, lying person. And the liberal scholars think they are so clever and they are so comfortable in their viewpoint, but they are so ignorant. For a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And why does the unbeliever kick against the Bible? Why, when you share the gospel with people, will people say, well, that's just the Bible. It's been written so many times and translated. You can't even believe it, which is a statement of sheer ignorance. Why do they kick against the Bible? Because of the implications it has on your life. And Jesus said, many will not come to the light because they agapao, Agape love, they willfully love their sin and they choose darkness over the truth. There's no other book like this book. There's no other religious book on the planet that has fulfilled prophecy. And that's why I went through this just as a reminder. And if you can't remember a single name, it's here for you to go back and document. Second, I learned from this text of Scripture, when you know God, you will stand up for God. We just read in verse 32, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now this prophecy concerns the days of apostasy when Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of antichrist, it's a prophecy of what God will ultimately do as we'll see next time. But these men in the days of Judas Maccabeus, how did they know God? How did they know what was going on? They were reading the Scriptures. Yes, there is general revelation in the clouds and the oceans and the mountains, but all the specific revelation where you come to know God specifically is found here in this book. And they knew what was going on point by point by point. And they knew that God was going to do what He said. And if it meant that they would lose their lives, they were going to lose it for the glory of God. They take action and they display strength. Listen, this man is just a type. He's just a picture, an illustration of the coming Antichrist. And the type is never as strong as the reality. And what Antiochus Epiphanes did, who is a Hitler type in his day, is child's play compared to what the coming Antichrist is going to do. But the people who know the living God in that day will display strength. Those who are converted during the tribulation period, if it costs them their head, and the Bible teaches in the book of Revelation that tens of thousands will be beheaded because they refuse to give themselves to the Antichrist. Now, if you know Christ, you won't be here because you will be raptured. But let me ask you a question, because there's a lot of Christians in our day 
who know the Lord enough to be saved, who can count their name written in the Lamb's book of life, but they know him in such an infantile way that they cannot communicate the truth to their children. And because they are apathetic and not displaying strength and taking action and passionate for the living God, they are raising up apathetic kids who might give their allegiance to the Antichrist. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now before you can really take strength and show action, you need to first know God in a saving way. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. And the first step to knowing the Lord is to be born again, to have His Spirit living in you. And the first step to being born again is to reach out in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Have you done that? Don't put it off because you have no promise of tomorrow. You may be dead tomorrow. And the living God who brought some of you here this morning because He loves you and cares about you may stop working in your heart tomorrow because you put Him off. And you may only seal your membership in the society that will give allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, Holy Father, what can we do but bow before you? And thank you that you gave us this difficult portion of Scripture and you wrote it all ever before it happened that you might silence those who will mock and make fun of your word. Thank you that there is no other book like it on the entire planet ever written in all of human history. May we, like Judas Maccabeus and those Jews who stood passionately for you, the God of Israel, may we know you and display action the way they did. I pray that our children and our grandchildren would see dads and moms and grandparents who are passionate for you that we would be able to infect them with a case of the real disease. Forgive us for our apathy when we have in our hands this morning your holy, inspired, inerrant word. And help someone today in simple, childlike faith. Though they don't understand it all, they understand that they are a sinner and they cannot save themselves and one came in their place to do it for them. Help someone today in simple faith here in Bluffton and Hilton Head and Graniteville or wherever people are watching. Help someone to cry out to you, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us to help them to grow that together we might reach the fullness that belongs to Jesus Christ. And we ask it in His holy name. Amen. We've been studying the meat of God's Word this week as we work through Daniel chapter 11. If you're like me, you sometimes need to hear a message two or three times to fully grasp the meaning and impact. Fortunately, this message entitled, The People Who Know Their God, can be heard again using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or by visiting us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN17. Tomorrow we'll pick up with the second half of Daniel chapter 11. Join us then as we search the scriptures.